doesn't end just with him. He wants to make that in all of us. He wants to make us whole. He wants to make us complete. He wants to make us everything that we can be. He wants to complete us. What I thought we would do um, is talk about the gospel. It's good. You know, I, I notice, I can't help but notice um, how much gospel work there is in Paul's epistles. He, he talks, he opens a lot of his commentary on, with with some kind of reiteration of the gospel. And those are church epistles. So it looks to me like the apostle is encouraging us to, to rehearse the gospel from time to time. So what I thought we would do is I would, uh, I would ask the question, if you had, say, a captive audience uh, and they asked you to come and present the gospel of Jesus Christ, what would, what would you say? What would you present? What, how, how, how would you communicate the, in some kind of concise way what the gospel of Jesus is? So I'm going to pretend like you're my captive audience today and, and talk about how we should understand what the gospel is. Um, the, the message of the gospel is, is as big or as small as you have time to present it. Like you can expand on it immensely. Uh, in that, in that regard, it has, you know, all these different facets and approaches that you can consider it from. But I think in the shortest, like in the, in the smallest presentation, the gospel is a recruitment effort to bring people into the kingdom of God. That's like the most concise expression that I can, I can give about what the gospel is. It's, it's the call to bring people into the kingdom of God. All of those terms need defined, right? Like, what does it mean to be recruited? What does it mean? To, what does the kingdom of God mean? What does this call mean? Like all of those are pieces that you can expand on. But we begin as the church by saying the gospel is the call to bring people in. So, so what are we bringing them into? Uh, I, um, what, why, why should somebody want to come in? What are they coming into? Those, that's the work of of our evangelistic endeavors is to to explain those things to people who may be interested. I thought we would start and end in Mark uh, as the shortest gospel account. Um, it, it's 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 a it's a useful place to begin if we want to if we want to concise look at what the gospel is. So so let's open to Mark chapter 1. The reason I wanted to start here is because I often talk about what the gospel is not with people. And that seems counterproductive in certain situations, but it seems necessary in others. Because there's so much that's been talked about and taught as the gospel 
sometimes we have to start, we have to clear the path. We have to clear the whiteboard a little bit to make room for what we want to present as the gospel. And what I would say is that the, the, the big corrective that's needed in what the gospel is, is, is to, to remove individualism from the gospel. That definition that I used, it's a, a call to bring people into the kingdom. Like the kingdom is the central thesis of the gospel message. God's kingdom here on earth with Jesus as its king is the central gospel message. And, and one of the most helpful ways I've found to, to present that idea is, is to disentangle the gospel itself from its results. You know, a lot of times when people talk about the, the gospel, they're talking about the cure for sin or the way to heaven or personal peace or all kinds of different, like, those are, those are some of the symptoms that come, some of the, some of the antecedents, what proceeds from the gospel. But the gospel itself, and why should it matter? Well, you, you, there's a lot of reasons. I'm going to skip that question for now. But, but we want to start with, what I like to start with is, what is the gospel that Jesus taught? Like, because that clears the air a lot. Like, we can, we can demystify a lot of modern conventions around the gospel message. If we go back and we say, well, we know that Jesus was preaching the gospel. What was the gospel that Jesus preached? Either he himself, when he went out from village to village, or when he commissioned the 70, or when he commissions the 12, what is the gospel that he's sending them to, to, to communicate to people? Because that's where I want to begin. I want to I want to teach and proclaim the gospel that was in Jesus's mouth and that he gave to his his representatives to communicate to the world around him. That's where we should begin with the gospel. And that that story does not begin with you have a a problem with sin and God's holy and just and because he's holy and just he can't allow you into heaven so you need some way to deal with your sin so Jesus came to earth and died on the cross for your sins and rose again on the third day so that you could go to heaven now God takes all his anger out on Jesus and not on you and there you go that's the go- that's not the gospel there's nothing to do with what Jesus is talking about when he sends his delegates or he himself presents the gospel so let's look and say what is the gospel of Jesus not about Jesus but the gospel of Jesus this is what we find in Mark chapter 1. And starting in verse uh, 13 for context, this is right after the temptation. Um, he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan, and was with wild beasts, and the angels ministered unto him. In verse 14, now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. So this is, in, in Mark, this is the, the, the expression of the gospel that Jesus is making, right as soon as he enters into his ministry. Like he's coming straight from the wilderness into his ministry, and he's saying these things. He's saying that... <clears throat> The time has come. The time has been fulfilled. So this is hearkening us back to, to where Jesus is coming from in the Hebrew tradition, what the prophets have been talking about. And this is a place where we can, if we have time and space, where we can share with people 
what the plan of God has been from the beginning. We go back to the garden. We talk about the fall. We talk about sin. We go into Israel, God's special people, his special laws, his way to separate that which is his from the, everything else. The the exclusivity of Israel, how, how the kings failed and succeeded, the the prophecies, the, the line of David, all of these things are a part of the time being fulfilled. That's all leading up to, all those prophecies in history are leading up to these moments where Jesus is here. Now Jesus is here and he's saying, the time is fulfilled. Like, it's finally happening. Everything that you've been told about, everything that's been been just, um prophesied all the culmination of what God's been doing with his people is here now. And the kingdom of God has come. Well, it's kind of funny for his listeners. The kingdom of God has come because what about David? What about those things? What about all this history? What about where where you're coming from? What about Israel? What about the law? What about all these things? Well, he's punctuating that and saying, this is, this is what God's after. This is the, this has been the plan. This is where we're, this is the culmination. This is what I wanted to do from the beginning. This is what it's all about. This kingdom. And then the call to repent. You have to qualify and commit. You have to make yourself ready. That's why John John the Baptist is the one who leads the way. John the Baptist comes and says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He says, he says, show fruit, meet, or worthy of repentance. Get your life right. Consider who you are. Consider what's happening. Consider where you're wrong. Consider where you're out of alignment with God. Consider who and what you are and who and what God is and where, how much of a gap is there between who and what you are and who and what he is. That has to be made right. That has to be repented. Repentance is a bunch of things, but in short, it's to agree with God, to change direction, to, to forsake the things that, that you want to do in, in lieu of what God wants to do. It's really important, I think, to explain what God's doing with sin in order to talk honestly about repentance. Why is something sinful that the Bible calls sinful? What is sin? This is probably the easiest component of the gospel to share. The part of your life that you know isn't right, the part of your life that you feel bad about, the things that you do that make you uncomfortable, the things that you do that make you feel dirty, the things that you do that that make you not happy with yourself, those times and those moments when you've done something and you walk away and you say, oh, I don't like that. I don't like that about me. I don't like that about what I did. That's the, the advantage that we have is that that kind of compass is built into us. Why is it built in? It's built in because God created us, and God created us in his image. He created us with a capacity to know these things. And when we feel that, that's sin, generally. What do you do with that? Well, we try to, we try to do better. We try to, we try to um, make amends sometimes, or we try to hide it and conceal it, or we try to... Um, 
make up for it in some other way. So I feel bad about this. So I do. I did this wrong thing. So now I try to do this right thing. Uh, give some money to charity or uh, help an old lady with her groceries or something. You know, we're trying to equalize the balance of our conscience. We're saying, I, I'm bothered by this. So I try to make up for it with that. That's that. That's that inner witness that comes from God of what it means to be a man, what separates us from the animals, what unites us to the divine image, why we're all made in the image of God. And that thing gets defiled because where our life comes from in the creation is from God. You know, back in the creation narrative, God shapes Adam out of the dust of the ground and he breathes life into him. And that that thing that makes us alive, that comes from God in every one of us. It, it literally comes from God in the original narrative of creation, but also in our own creation, where we come from. That thing that makes us alive and makes us human comes from God. And it is literally life. It's the light that lights every man. John says uh, of Jesus that he is the light that lighteth every man. That thing that makes us us comes from God, and it puts a stamp inside of us, the image of God. And we and that is life. And the things that we do that are called sin are the things that break life. They make for death. They corrupt. They rot. They destroy. They break. So there's these competing things within us. This mark of God, the life, the light that we're made with, and sin or darkness and death. And those two things compete in every one of us. And this is the, this is the constant struggle of humanity. It goes back as far as man exists. Since there's been man in the garden and the fall, this conflict, this internal conflict has been happening. And so we find ourselves like vacillating back and forth between these two impulses, between this law in us, this compulsion that we have towards sin, and this internal compass that knows life, that knows light. Those two things are are in conflict with each other. And what God's doing throughout his whole framework of working with his people is he's saying, I'm going to make I'm going to make the life in you, the light in you whole. And I'm going to get rid of the darkness, the sin. In in both the cosmic scale, like what we call the eschaton, the, the end of all things, when everything gets set right and everything gets judged and everything is put in its proper category and everything is quantified, that judgment is the final set, the final dealing with that, but it's happening in a microcosm in each of us as we pursue the gospel, the good news, this story about Jesus and the kingdom of God coming. So all of these things are swirling together to, to make for the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is going to be the people who have dealt with this broken part of themselves and become a part of this kingdom of God. A, a big concept for all of this is... Um, is, is how we answer the question of why, why why should I care about this king? Why should I care about who Jesus is? If It sounds like a lot of work to have this internal conflict and wrestle with it and deal with it. Why, why, should, why is that the best recourse for me? Why, why not um, 
one night a self-help guru or a lot of charitable work or a juice cleanse or something else. Why, why, why is this the way to deal with the things that bother me about me? Well, because the answer to that question that we offer is who Jesus himself is. And, and the, I think the best way to, to introduce Jesus is with the concept of the logos. So God, God makes the whole created order. We're assuming that, and we'll have to beg the question sometimes, but we assume God creates the world. And he creates it the way he wants it. And he sets things up so that, so that the pinnacle of his creation, the real point to his creation, is, is man and his connection to man. That they're, they, have a, they have a relationship together, that they walk together, that they're friendly, that they're, they're, they're in community with each other. So, so man and God are connected. And something happens to break that. Sin this brokenness that we talked about, breaks that, tears it apart. And now God and man find themselves across a wall from one another. And I think that our modern gospel narratives have been talking about how to fix the God problem we have instead of how to fix the man problem that we have. We've created, a, a especially in the Western tradition, we've created a way of thinking about the, the problem that we have and the remedy that has everything to do with what God sees and does, like how he sees our sin, how we get him to forgive us, how we find ourselves in a, in a category where he's not angry with us, instead of what I think is the, the older, pure version of the gospel, how do we fix me? What do I do about myself? The rationale for that is that what we know about God, what he reveals about himself, is that our problem is not God. What I mean by that is getting God to forgive me is not the hard thing. Because God talks about himself, and, and, and where we begin, we don't have anything to go off of but what he says about himself. And what he says about himself repeatedly is that he's quick to forgive. He's eager to set us right. He's, he's waiting to be in relationship with us, that he's not far off, that he wants his creation redeemed, that he wants us to be where he made us, that that's all of the desire of the divine is to have us where he wanted us to be in the first place. So, so it's like just a knock on the door away and God is on the other side waiting, waiting, the problem is not getting God either interested or willing to forgive. The problem is that when, when I interact with God, I offend him again and again and again. That I'm constantly living in this vacillated state of offending God and then trying to make it right and offending God and trying to make it right. And that vacillation of being making myself God's enemy, the enemy of life, the enemy of truth, whether that's through lying or lusting or stealing or whatever, whatever my pet sins are, those things keep me in this category where I'm, I can't be in relationship with him. I often talk about it this way. If um, David and I are neighbors and if David knocks on my door every Tuesday and I open the door and David slaps me in the face, 
And I'm like, wow, David, what's that about? And he storms off mad and angry. And as soon as he walks away, I completely forgive him. I got no malice. I have no anger. I, I'm just like as pure as Christ and the new driven snow. And and I, I either understand where he's coming from or what's broken in his life that causes him to do that to me. And I completely forgive him. There's nothing left. There's no offense in me. And then Tuesday comes around and I open the door and he slaps me again. And Tuesday comes around and he slaps me again. And, tu- and the only relationship that David and I have is him slapping me in the face. Well, the problem in our relationship is not how to get Matthew to forgive. That's not the problem. The problem is that anytime he and I are interacting, he's offending. He's hurting. He's breaking what could be. And that's how we find ourselves lost in the world. We find ourselves ensnared by our flesh, by our desires, by our hungers and appetites, by our selfishness. Like all of these things, they grab a hold of us and they hold on. And it puts us in this category with God. We Again and again, all we like sheep have gone astray. We again and again cling to the things that are broken in us like dope addicts, like sin is like an addiction. It holds on to us. No matter how much you hate it, no matter how much you don't want to do it, you find yourself again and again repeating that thing. Sometimes that's sometimes that's against other people. Sometimes it's against yourself. Sometimes it's against the truth. Sometimes it's against the poor. Sometimes there's all kinds of manifestations of what's broken. There are some people that struggle like that. There's every manifestation of brokenness. Self-hate, neighbor hate, all, um, every manifestation. Those things, they grab a hold of us and they hold on to us and we're stuck there. And no matter how many things we try to do, no matter how many distractions we had in our life or how many um, ways to accommodate or make up for we find ourselves again and again trapped in these cycles. And it's that cycle, that repetition, that's the problem. That's what the gospel needs to resolve. Um, I, wanted, I was going to save this to the end, but there's some interesting, you know, some of these, some of these church leaders that, that, that I read, that we all read, um, some of them wrote about their experiences with the gospel. And it's really interesting to me because these are some of the oldest accounts of Christians becoming Christians. And um, there's two of them in particular. Cyprian is one who shares his testimony very clearly. Um, and and Justin Martyr is another one. But look what... Um, Let me share this with you. This is Cyprian's testimony. Cyprian was a bishop um, in the third century. He says, I used to regard it as a difficult matter, and especially difficult because of my character at at that time, that a man could be capable of being born again. Yet this was a truth that the divine mercy had announced for my salvation. I thought it difficult that a man quickened to a new life in the bath of saving water would be able to put off what he had previously been 
That is, although retaining all his bodily structure, he himself could be changed in heart and soul. I said, how is such a conversion possible? That there could be a sudden and rapid divestment of all our corrupt habits. I used to indulge my sins as if they were actually parts of me and native to me. But after that, by the help of the water of new birth, the stain of former years had been washed away, and a light from above, serene and pure, had been infused into my reconciled heart. Then by the agency of the Spirit breathed from heaven, a second birth had restored me to a new man. I was enabled to acknowledge that what had been previously living in the practice of sins, being born in the flesh, was of the earth and was earthly, but now it had begun to be of God and was enlivened by the Spirit of holiness. There's a there's a way of thinking of all these things that has um, the concept that we would invoke is called vocational humanity. Why does why is man here? What's our purpose and who are we? If we're created, to what end are we created? And that's what Cyprian's talking about is that we weren't created for the brokenness. We weren't created for sin. We weren't created for death. We were created for life and truth and wholeness. Back to Logos. Let's go back to Logos. Jesus is called the Logos. It's a funny Greek word. It's often translated word in English, but it's a much bigger concept than word. And most of you probably heard, but the the way I explain Logos is, is, is like the perfect conception made real. That's why the word Logos is called word, because what do you do when you speak? Well, you have something, you have an idea or some thought, and you make it real. You put it into the real world. It comes out of your intellectual inner self, and you make it something in the real world. You make it, literally, you turn it into sound waves that are appreciable and understandable by other people around you. You make the thing in your head real in the world. And that's why logos is translated word. And Jesus is the logos of God. What does that mean? God had an idea. He had a concept. What can man be? How big, how thorough, how complete, how whole, how perfect could a man be? What's God's perfect concept of who and what we could be? That's Jesus. He's the Logos of God. Those thoughts translated into the real world through the life of Jesus. That's Logos. And and it doesn't end just with him. He wants to make that in all of us. He wants to make us whole. He wants to make us complete. He wants to make us everything that we can be. He wants to complete us. And this is... This is the kingdom of God. The people who have experienced this and follow after that model, the disciples, the people who are made new and like him, that society, that culture, that nation is the gospel. You see you see now why it matters how we define the gospel because 
if it's just about me, then you lose all of that part that's about the community, that's about the nation, that's about the society that comes from the gospel. And we can't afford to lose that because that's really what Jesus is doing. When he says the time is full, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. He's saying this is being made right here, right now. This nation, this is the beginning point. This people who are going to be after me, that are going to pursue the Logos and become like it, that's happening now. It's time has come. That's, that's the gospel message. Back in Mark chapter 1, the end of that is to believe. Repent and believe. One wonders why the belief part is there. Like, is it a is it a is it something you can do apart from belief? And what does belief mean? Like, could you go through the components? Could you? Is it like a? Is it mathematically precise? If you did the things that were said to do, would it result in 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 the end goal, whether or not you believed in it? Because, like, I don't have to believe in gravity for it to work. I don't have to have any understanding, any confidence in it, any belief in it, and it is. It just is. Well, why, why isn't the gospel that way? Well, if you do the things, the thing happens. If you drop the ball, the ball falls. It doesn't matter what you think about it. It doesn't matter how you believe. The reason it matters is because belief is about what you Belief is about what you trust. Belief is about what you hope. Belief is about what you have confidence in. And that activation of that part of yourself is essential for this work to happen. That to put your confidence in and to put your hope in this kingdom that God is establishing is the work that is to be done. It's, it's a necessary piece of what happens the repentance is necessary and the belief or the confidence and hope in the kingdom of God is what's necessary. It's what causes us to do the things that we do. So the, the two central pieces that we want to build our gospel story out of are what is this kingdom and who is this king? The kingdom is the redeemed people, the people who've been saved, not in the future, but right here and right now, who've been made whole, who are being made whole. (coughs) And the king of that kingdom, the person leading the show, the person uh, showing us where to go, what to be and what to do, his whole... Everything about him, let me say it this way. The first four books of the New Testament are called The Gospel According to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I think the reason they have come to be known that way is because the complete gospel, the whole picture, is Jesus' whole life. 
he's he's the one that we're following. He's the one that we're emulating. He's the one that's showing us what to do and what to be. He's the one that has the the right and the authority to show us how to be what all of these things are about. And that whole life, the way he was, the way he came to be, the things that he did, the things that he said, all of that is essential to our salvation, to our participation, to our involvement in the kingdom of God. It's the charter of what it means to be his people. And so this whole narrative of the, of the Gospels, the, the life story of Christ, that's like the long, drawn-out version of the call to come and be a part. And, and the fascination with Jesus himself is the call to the Gospel. Like, to fall in love with him is to respond to the Gospel. To see him for what he is. To hear him for what he has to say. And to receive what he has to give that's that's answering the call. That's answering the call. That's what it means to be a disciple. To to look for and to see and to receive who and what he is. You know, it's interesting to me that he says these things like, who do men say that I am? What's, what's he after there? What's he trying to get out of the people that are close to him? He's trying to get them to figure out the question, who are you? What is all this about? When you can answer that question, who is Jesus and what's all this about? That's how you come into the kingdom. That's how the gospel becomes active and alive in your life. Because to see him for who he is, is to love him. There's a lot of things that get in the way. There was a lot of things that got in the way of the disciples, you know. Their understanding of, 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 of their religion, of their nation, of their families of their purpose, of all the things that, of themselves, their, all, the, all of their own notions about those identity pieces got in the way of them seeing him for what he really was because most people didn't see him for what he was. Most PM, people saw him as a threat or as a problem or as a weirdo or as a kook or as something else. But a few people saw him and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the one. You're the Messiah. You're the King. And those people were the disciples. From time to time, we find ourselves with people who, who, who accept the premise. Okay, I believe the Bible's true. Okay, I read the gospel. Okay, I, 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 I get it. Jesus is, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is established in the kingdom. Jesus did miracles. Jesus rose from the dead. And they don't find themselves within the kingdom. There's something that has to break. And that thing that has to break is seeing him for who he is. Not just the narrative piece, but, the, but who he really is. That moment that Peter has 
Jesus says, this isn't revealed to you from flesh, but from my Father above, when he says, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's not a, that's not a statement of fact. It's an experience with reality. That's what revelation is. It's not just to be able to say that because A plus B equals C. It's not just him saying, you're the Messiah. It's saying, you're the Messiah, and I know it, and I understand what that means. It's not just conferring a title. It's like the difference between calling a Christian brother so-and-so and seeing your brother who you love, who you think is your family, and saying, oh, my brother. That's the difference. It's one thing to say, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's another thing to know him as the Christ, as your king, as the one to who you will bow and, and live your life for and express all your allegiance to and come after and follow wherever he tells you to go. That's the difference between knowing and revealing. And when people are stuck in that place, what we want them to do is we want them to have a revelation. We want them to accept those things, not just as fact, but as truth. Another thing that the gospel is not is a feeling. It is a revelation, but it's not a feeling. When I read through Acts and we see more people accepting the gospel in Acts than anywhere else, see whole groups accepting the gospel, what it's sometimes strangely lacking is these kind of like touchy-feely lightning bolt moments. What most of the recorded events of people receiving the gospel are communicating the gospel and them accepting. I accept that that's true and I'm going to live by it. That's what it means. It doesn't have to... That's what it means. Accept and follow. These things are true. I, 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 we, all, those, all that discourse we just had about Revelation, they're not just true in theory. They're true in reality. They're true to me. They're true for me. And I'm going to embrace them and follow them. That's, that's the entry. That's coming into. That's receiving and accepting the gospel. When we talk about the king of this kingdom that the gospel is all about, we're talking about his teachings, we're talking about his works, we're talking about his identity as the Logos, we're talking about his community. I don't mean his community like this, I mean his community like his people being with him. I and the Father will make our abode with you, we'll come and live with you. His community includes me. His community, Jesus' community, includes the Father, the God of all, and the Spirit, 
and me and you. That's his community. I and the Father will make our abode with you. You're going to be a part of our habitation. You're going to be my temple, the place where I dwell. This this kingdom isn't made out of geopolitical borders and walls and buildings and capitals and and all of those things that men mark a nation and a kingdom out of. It's made out of us. Another, another central component of the gospel we'll look at 1 Corinthians is the resurrection. The reason the resurrection is a central premise of the gospel, and especially in Paul's writings, in Romans and Corinthians, he talks about it. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15 is where we're going to look. But the resurrection is like the, the linchpin it's the confirmation. It's the, it's the ultimate evidence of the king and his kingdom. Because the, the point to the kingdom is to set things back in order. The point to the kingdom of, of Jesus is the kingdom of God is to fix what's broken in the world. And the thing that's broken in the world is death. Sin is the cause of that, but the result of what's broken in the world is death, death itself. Death in the individual sense, like I'm going to die one day and this mortal body is going to quit working and has for my father and my father's fathers and all of our fathers all the way back, that individual death, but also death itself, death the institution Death, the bondage, death, the slavery that every mortal possesses. That institution is what is going to be ultimately undone with the kingdom of God. And the final act is death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. They're done away with forever. That's the final act of the kingdom as far as we're concerned. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes this point clear and he connects it to the gospel itself. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. So there's a lot of content there mentioned in brief that Christ died for our sins and it's according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So this short summation of the gospel right here in Corinthians is that Jesus died for our sins um, according to the scriptures and he rose again on the third day. also according to the scriptures. And then he was seen of Cephas and then of the twelve. 
After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also, as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that I'm not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, if he didn't actually defeat death as the last act of his, of his mortal life, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Like, the whole, the whole point to the ministry of Christ was to come, to show us how to be wholly human, and then to go and break death, that final conquest, the final thing that was in the way of us being in the kingdom of God, the final thing that would keep a hold of us, that would drag us back into being stuck in what's broken in the world. He went ahead and conquered death itself. And if that piece isn't done, then what came before it isn't done. Then we don't actually have a path to victory. We don't actually have a way to live a different life. We're still stuck in all the same pattern. Everything that, everything that he promised doesn't work if he doesn't undo death for us. And Jesus himself is talking about that. He talks about it with the woman at the well. He talks about it with the rebuilding of the temple. He talk, all this imagery that he's using is, is uh, the Lazarus, you know, the situation with raising Lazarus from the dead. All, I am the resurrection and the life. He's making, he's making the, the statements over and over again in, in imagery, in story, and in narrative. I'm going to go ahead of you and make the way clear. I'm going to fix the problem once and for all. And if he didn't do that, then none of that's true. Then everything else doesn't work. If Christ be not risen, then our preaching, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. This is an important distinction about the true gospel. The true gospel is not self-help. The true gospel is not a fix-your-life. The true gospel is not seven steps to a better way to live. The true gospel is not any of those things. The true gospel is the real power of God to change men and to set them free from death. Individually and collectively. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. 
For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Else what shall they do who are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead, and why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I protest by rejoicings which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. When we want to articulate the gospel, we need to show people the king and why he matters and what he promised, the kingdom that's supposed to come from him, and the culmination, which is the defeat of death. Those are the three pillars. One, there's a lot of different ways to, to discuss these things. <clears throat> there's a lot of ways to approach those very big subjects. But sometimes the most useful is, is by way of testimony. I think it's why we see, uh, I think it's why Cyprian bothered to write those things out. Let me, let me read you Justin's, it's very interesting to me, Justin's path. This is kind of a condensed version of why Justin Martyr became a Christian. He says, When I was delighting in the doctrines of Plato, I heard Christians being slandered. Yet I saw that they were fearless in death and unafraid of all other things that are considered fearful. And I realized that it was impossible that they could be living in wickedness and pleasure. For what sensual or intemperate person could welcome death, which would deprive him of his enjoyments? Such a person would prefer to continue always in the present. And he goes on to say, when this, he, he talks about meeting an, uh, an old Christian man in the country. And he says, when this Christian had spoken these and many other things, which there is no time for mentioning at the present, he went away, exhorting me to attend to them. And I have not seen him since, but immediately a flame was kindled in my soul. And I was possessed by a love of the prophets and one of those men who are friends and of those men who are friends of Christ. Retiring by myself, I sought how I might Oh, I'm sorry, this is a different man. So so that when when so he first begins to consider the Christian community because of how they die and their fearlessness and they're not being held by all the things that hold all the other people who claim to be 
philosophers. And then he meets an old Christian who shares with him the things about Christ, these, these king and kingdom concepts, and it just it lights him up. He, he recognizes that there's something in it, and he wants, to, he wants to figure it out. He becomes thirsty and hungry for this righteousness. Another mentation said, Retiring by myself, I sought how I might be able to discover the truth. And while I was giving my most earnest attention to the matter, I happened to meet with certain barbaric writings, too old to be compared with the opinions of the Greeks, yet too divine to be compared with their errors. And I was led, up to f- I was led to put faith in them by the unpretentious nature of the language, the candid character of the writers, the foreknowledge displayed of future events, the excellent quality of the teachings, and the declaration that the government of the universe is created in one being." King and kingdom. You know, my own my own testimony, one I think one of the most Im- impactful things from our life is when, you know, after years of rough living, I found myself in a situation where it was after I was interested in Christ and the gospel, I had a renewed sense of of not just interest, but eagerness to understand what God was doing, how to understand my own experiences with what I had been taught about the Bible and where I was at in my life and the the chasm between what I thought was true and what I lived. And, and I was seeking God and I wanted to know Him. And I, I got to a place where I felt like I really had that revelationary experience where where I could say, not as a form that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, but in in reality. I feel like I'm not doing that concept justice. And I feel like that's the piece that that you can't you can't um you can't use apologetics or logic to bring somebody to. There is something about the gospel that requires God working. There is something that we need the Holy Spirit to to testify. That thing that Justin says that it it caused it caused a burning inside of him. That thing only God does, and we can pray for it and ask God to work with the people that we're speaking to. But we need the Holy Spirit to testify of these things to people. That it's not just words, not just ideas, but that they're made real. But that had happened to me, and I didn't understand the consequences. Both Eric and I's testimony was that we didn't understand the implications of that. We weren't being led very well. We didn't have people discipling us. But both of us had experiences early in our conversion where the thing that we were went away. In both of our cases, it was around the, the issue of violence, but both of us had experiences where that same kind of like animal inside of us that, that would fight and destroy, seek to hurt, that same evil inside of us, when we expected it to be there was gone. There were a lot of things that we did. There were, 
you know, we, we, we repented. We were setting a lot of things right in our life, in our relationship, in, in, in our ethics. Like there was a lot of work that we were doing, but the thing that we didn't do is change who we were. I couldn't not be an angry and violent person. It didn't matter how I changed my mind about my ethics or my value structure or my worldview. That couldn't have changed my capacity to hate and to hurt. But God did something to change that inside of me. That's the, that's the interface between the individual and the kingdom of God. That's the entry point where I leave my, my nation, myself, my family, and I become his and his disciple. It's good to practice the gospel. It's good to talk about the gospel among us, to rehearse it again and again, to become um, exercised in, in discussing and, and articulating the gospel. I pray that we would all have experiences in the days and weeks ahead to practice sharing these things. And I, you don't need an hour. Sometimes you just need a moment. Sometimes you just need a word. Sometimes you just need a short little experience with someone to plant these seeds of the gospel. Just these little pieces, just the listening ear or the sympathetic interaction with somebody to show that you care, to show that you're living a different way in a different world, that you have a whole different structure. That's, that's planting the seeds of all these things. We've done a million different ways, a million different times. So I pray that God would help us to be faithful to the gospel.